Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. On this Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters the holy city en route to the cross, we take one step closer to the cross ourselves as we continue our sermon series in the book of Matthew. In this latest episode, Christ clarifies and corrects his disciples' understanding about greatness in the kingdom of God. When they first came to him in Capernaum, they were seeking honor and glory, hoping to be the most highly exalted on earth. But that's not how it works in the economy of heaven. Now, in order to be first in the eyes of God, you must be last. In order to be greatest of all, you must be servant of all. Cloaking yourself in humility rather than boasting in your strength. To illustrate that point, Jesus called a small child to himself, set him before the group, and began to discuss not only their need to become like children, but also their responsibility to the little ones who believe. Don't be the reason that one of them stumbles, Jesus warns the apostles. And don't despise them when they do. Instead, you go after them. Like the shepherd of a hundred sheep who searches tirelessly for the one who has gone astray, you go after the wayward. Knowing the extraordinary value of each and every individual who believes. That's Christ's call to the apostles. And to those following him today. To work as ministers of reconciliation. Confident that God will return all of his sheep to the pen. Wandering or otherwise. Because it is not his will that even one of these little ones who believe would perish. That's Christ's call to the apostles and to those following him today. But how do we do it? How do we compel a fellow believer to be reconciled when he or she has become so entangled in sin? How do we restore the straying sheep who has ventured so far from the fold? If only there was some process laid out for us. If only some steps to follow. Well, thanks to Jesus' teaching in Galilee, there are. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. And follow along as we read the process that God has ordained for this express purpose, beginning in verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, one of the greatest benefits of working through a particular book of the Bible, verse by verse, expositionally, as we do, is the ability to study God's Word in its right biblical context. And we need look no further than this morning's text to understand why that is so very important. If we lift these six verses out of Matthew 18 separating Christ's instructions here from his instruction before and after, well, then we are left with the process of church discipline. Simple and straightforward, but on its own, as though someone asked Jesus, how do we discipline people? And this was his reply. That's how this text is presented. 99% of the time. On its own, as though someone asked Jesus, how do we discipline people? And this was Jesus' reply. But that was never the question. And we know that because we just studied this teaching's context in the first half of the chapter. Where Jesus says to the apostles, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. More than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. See, the question is not how do we discipline people as though discipline is the goal. No. The question on the minds and hearts of the apostles at this point in the conversation, and thus the question that Jesus was answering when he gets to verse 15 is how do we reconcile and restore that one wayward, wandering, caught-in-sin sheep without compromising the purity and integrity of the greater flock? That's the question. Because that's the goal to reconcile and restore those redeemed members of the faith community who have, for a time, fallen into sin. How do we go after them? 
How do we engage them? How do we partner with the Holy Spirit to bring them back? It doesn't just happen by osmosis. (laughs) There's work to be done on our part. And it is work. And believe you me, it is work to do what Jesus is commanding here. But if you say that you love your brother or sister in Christ, then you take on the work. No matter how uncomfortable, how difficult, how demanding it might be, you will take on this work for the good of that fellow believer and for the glory of God. Yeah? Now the first step in trying to reclaim a wayward saint is to offer them a personal reproof. Take a look back at verse 15 of our text. Is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish? Therefore, if your brother sins, go after him and show his fault to him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother back. Now, depending on your particular Bible translation, you may see that first phrase rendered a bit more pointedly. If your brother sins against you. But those words do not appear in Matthew's original manuscript. And though they are not completely inaccurate, given the context that we just discussed, I don't think Jesus was limiting his instruction to circumstances that involve only a personal attack. No, if believers go wayward into all sorts of sin, which they do, then all sorts of sin needs to be addressed. Whether it's against me, against a fellow congregant, against a member of our community, or against only the one true and living God. All sin should be addressed and in a very particular manner. Jesus says, the one who knows about the sin should go have a conversation with the sinner in private rather than complaining about the situation to everyone else. Rather than gossiping about the person's iniquity to everyone we meet. Rather than broadcasting their offense all over town. We go and we deal directly with the sheep who has gone wayward. With all the care and concern of the shepherd who was just referenced in the parable before. Yes? That has to be our mindset. Our heart set. Our overriding motivation. It's not to win over them. It's to win them over. And we do that by pressing them to a point of conviction. Now, of course, we know conviction only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit working within them. 
And we take no credit for that inward spiritual transformation should it come. But we must do our part to aid the Holy Spirit's influence by showing the sinner his fault, as we are told in verse 15. Now that concept comes from the Greek word elenko, which tells us we are to rebuke, reprove, or admonish in order to bring about correction. Isn't that what we are hoping for as we call one another to account? That our reproof would lead to a course correction and turn back the one who has gone astray. And what a tremendous blessing that would be for a sin to be repented of before it blinds completely, before it escalates unnecessarily, and before it draws others into its wake. What a tremendous blessing it would be. The sin would be halted right here. And it might be halted right here. If the individual will listen to the personal challenge of a fellow believer, if the individual acknowledges their sin in that kind of setting, if the individual responds to your rebuke with agreement, saying, I have sinned against God. It has been affecting my walk. Thank you for caring enough to point it out to me. Where that is the case, well, you have gained your brother. Strengthening your relationship with them, yes, but more importantly, restoring them to the Lord. As James says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the blessing of personal reproof. One we will only realize once we learn to Give and receive this correction from our friends. Are you there? If that does not bring about repentance and restoration as it's intended, well, then we escalate the matter from a personal reproof to a confirmed confrontation. Take a look at verse 16. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, as Jesus describes the next step of this reconciliation and restoration process, the hope is that we will never have to reach it. I mean, one person's rebuke ought to be enough to help me see my sin and repent then of it. I mean, we should never get to this step. But oftentimes we do. 
for two main reasons. Either we are too offended by the rebuke itself to listen to what is actually being said by this fellow believer, or we are just too sinfully stubborn to admit that we might be wrong. Don't those tend to be our two reactions? How dare you challenge me and the way that I live my life? Who made you judge or jury? And all this time, I thought you were my friend. Of course, none of that has anything to do with the sin being shown them. But the offense of the rebuke itself has left them completely deaf to that more important part of the conversation. And they will find themselves in the same place as the one who does hear what you're telling them about their sin, but is too proud, too thick, too hard-hearted to acknowledge the error of his ways when personally confronted. Sadly, this is the trouble with most of us. That, as Norman Peale has said, we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. That's why we need a step two. Because even where there is this resistance to restoration, even where there is this rejection of the rebuke, we're still not done going after the straying sheep. No, we're going to keep after them by investing even more resources in the effort. Jesus says, if your brother in sin does not listen to you when you go on your own, all is not lost, nor is the job finished. No, you go again, this time taking one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, the reason for involving the two or three is based on a long-standing principle of the Hebrew judiciary. To assure right and fair legislation, God told the Jewish people in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed, at least not in a way that would condemn him in the courtroom. Rather, it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses that a matter shall be confirmed. And this can play out a couple of different ways. If the wayward saint comes to his or her senses, and having considered their sin, perhaps being moved by the wisdom of these multiple counselors, and there stand two or three ready to confirm the glory of their repentance. But where that is not the response There stands two or three ready to confirm his continued rebellion. We're hoping for the one. I mean, without question, hoping for the one. But sadly, it is all too rare a response. That's why the progression continues. Because those first two interactions don't always reconcile and restore. 
And in such a case, well, we involve even greater resources. Moving from a personal reproof and a confirmed confrontation to a congregational appeal. Take a look back at verse 17. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three we have it confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And not much is said about the particulars of this important third stage. Jesus says nothing about the setting in which this should happen. No mention of the mechanical functions that should take place. But the sentiment is unmistakable. That as an individual becomes more and more entrenched in their sin, we engage more and more people to untrench them. From one to two or three to the entire congregation, or at least a significant number who represents it. Now, because Christ is so succinct in his remarks on telling it to the church, there's much debate about who exactly Jesus has in view here. Do we stop what we are doing on a Sunday morning to announce so-and-so's iniquity in front of everyone? Or when talking to the church, does the Lord mean to the elders of the church. Well, I think it probably depends on the situation. If none of the elders have been involved in steps one or two and are somewhere still unaware of the situation, that's probably where this needs to go, to the elders. Because they have authority in the church and can decide what the Lord would have them do in regard to the church. But if the elders have already been engaged, and the sin that persists involves the congregation, would influence the congregation, or puts the congregation at risk, then the congregation at large needs to know not only to protect them from further injury, but so the wayward one would feel that greater, heavier, communal weight of conviction before it's too late. One came, and I didn't listen. Two came, and I turned them away. But now every single member of my faith family is calling me to account on this. Maybe there really is a problem. Maybe I do need to repent. I mean, that's still our hope, friends. That as a congregation, our attitudes and our actions, our corrections and rebukes would cause the sinner to come home. But that isn't going to happen by Ignoring one another's iniquity or tolerating one another's sin. And we think that's the way of reconciliation, but it's not. 
No, we have to be willing to do these difficult things. Because where sin has a great stronghold, it takes a great weight to set us free. Yeah? I mean, this is the process. From a personal reproof to a confirmed confrontation and a congregational appeal. But if none of those have brought about repentance, if the sinner remains steadfastly, resolutely, and defiantly in their sin after all of these attempts have been made, then the Lord Jesus commands a wholesale rejection. Take a look at our text again. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. When all previous attempts at reconciliation have failed, and even the full weight of the congregation yields no result, we make one final attempt using the only instrument still at our disposal, the instrument of excommunication. That's what Jesus is referring to when he tells the apostles at this point in the proceedings to treat the sinner as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now put simply, excommunication is the removal of a person from fellowship in the church. And in these cases of willful defiance, where a congregant has over and over and over again refused to repent, Scripture commands us to take such action. In Romans chapter 16, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Again, in Titus, we are told to reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Or simply, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, as we are told in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Now, I realize this action might seem a bit harsh. But once the sinner has forced us over this threshold, we have to turn our minds and hearts back to the purity and integrity of the 99. Yeah? Hopefully, prayerfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work, the one strange sheep will come to realize what it means to be cut off from the fellowship of the saints and repent at last of their evil. But once they have been excommunicated, 
That is no longer our chief pursuit. If it happens, praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah. But that's now entirely between them and God. Our care and concern must turn back to the sheep who are listening to the voice of the shepherd. Who are walking the path of righteousness. Who do want to pasture in peace and rest. That is why at some point, after all that can be done, has been done. We have to love the 99 enough to send the one away. Not only does Scripture compel us to take this action when it's called for, Scripture condemns us if we don't. In the church of Corinth, for example, leaders there were reluctant to put a man out who persisted in sin. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, Paul says. And immorality of such a kind as does not even exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. As he should be. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that perhaps by taking this action, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting in this matter is not good, Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven then, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Delivering one over to Satan is what we are doing in this excommunication cutting them off from fellowship with the saints and putting them where they themselves have shown preference to be, in the hands of the evil one. And maybe through this one final act, a turning back might still take place. Sadly, it rarely does. Because they have doubled and tripled down on their sin already. Because they've rejected the counsel of an entire elect company at this point. And because we aren't united enough in our convictions to convict them of their sin. Excommunication, you see, it has to be wholesale or it can't possibly be effectual on those rare occasions that we have had to excommunicate an individual well they have been welcomed into another church the very next week 
A church that is happy as it can be to have gained another congregant. And most of the time, even the members of the excommunicating church stay in fellowship with the sinner on the side. Well, just know, friends, that when you do that, and many of you still are, you are trampling underfoot the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That person is never going to feel the separation, the isolation, and the abandonment that God has intended if you decide to remain friends. Now you think that you are being loving, but you are being selfish. And you are taking the teeth right out of this entire process. Keeping them from repentance and condemning their soul to hell. No, we need to have unity in this matter, friends. Otherwise, the putting out accomplishes nothing. This is the process that Jesus lays out for reconciliation and restoration where it is possible. It begins with a personal reproof, followed by a confirmed confrontation, a congregational appeal, and when necessary because of unrepentance, a wholesale rejection. That's the process that we are given. And it has the full backing of the Lord God himself. That's what we're told in verses 18 through 20. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, Jesus tells the apostles, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. If the first part of this statement sounds familiar, well, that is for good reason. Jesus said this exact same thing at his first mention of the word ecclesia, church, back in chapter 16. There he said to Peter and the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In both cases, Jesus is giving the apostles a delegated authority to act on his behalf. You have to remember, as Palm Sunday should remind us, Christ is not long for the earth at this point. But his authority will remain in the ministry of these 12 apostles. That's the means by which they have healed the lame man. It's where they got the ability to cast out the demon. And it's what gives them the right to make these God-stamped decrees. Back in chapter 16, it was the admittance of church members to which Christ was referring. Here it relates to a member's dismissal. See, Jesus wants to assure them 
So long as they work through this process with the right motivation, being attentive to God's word, their decision to excommunicate will have the full backing of heaven. And not only do the apostles need to know that, we need to know that too. In fact, that's the ultimate weight that the sinner should experience in this as they dig in their heels of unrepentance. It's not just that they will be put out of this church. It's that in being put out of this church, God is putting them out of his. Surely the decisions of the first century apostles carried that weight and had that endorsement. And if this process remains in place in the modern era, as we say it does, then so long as they are carrying out their duties in accordance with the word of God, it's also true of ecclesiastical leaders today. What they do and decide has real weight and binding authority. Not in the same degree as Peter and John, granted. But still, I wouldn't take their instructions lightly. Nor would I dismiss their words flippantly. No, I would listen. And I would heed. Because if the elders, as a group, agree in their determination, their assessment, their judgment... The Lord God stands with them in their ruling. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. A few verses of scripture have been as misplaced and misappropriated over the years as these two. But we have to consider them in their right context. When Jesus uses this phrase, peripantos pragmatos, concerning every matter or about anything, as we read it in the New American Standard, he's not writing a blank check, as some would purport. He's talking in the context of a judicial matter like excommunication. Oftentimes, the word pragma has that very sense. Nor is Christ talking about God attending to our prayer gatherings. I mean, though the Lord's presence is manifest when we pray, this has nothing to do with that. No, Jesus is saying he is with the leaders of his church to validate their decisions on church discipline much in the way Paul said he would be with the Corinthians in spirit as they took action against the man who persisted in sin. As the psalmist reminds us, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges with, alongside, and in the midst of his rulers. Psalm 82, verse 1. Now, the fact that Jesus has delegated his authority to men, it doesn't mean he is bound to add his divine sanction to anything that they conjure. 
but rather that God stands behind and endorses those rightly motivated and godly actions taken up by the leaders of his church. And if God is backing them in their decisions, so too should we. Yeah? Friends, if we want to love the wayward sinner like God loves them, if we want to see them reconciled and restored like we say we're after, well, then this is the process that we must follow. It begins with a personal reproof, followed by a confirmed confrontation, a congregational appeal, and when necessary, a wholesale rejection. This is the process, and we carry it out with great confidence, knowing it has the full backing of the Lord God himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to consider your word. Not just ripped off the page, but in its right context, that we might see your heart, that we might understand your instruction. And Lord, this is a call to all of us. We have very real opportunities in this place to head off sin when we see it ensnaring one of our friends in the congregation. We have an opportunity to speak truth to someone who is caught up for the moment and going wayward. And Lord, there's a prescribed way to do that. And we thank you that we have that instruction so clearly laid out. But Lord, it's difficult and it's challenging and it's hard sometimes to do these things, both to give and to receive these kind of challenges. So Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to trust your word on this. Lord, help us to appreciate your heart develop it for ourselves and to go after people no matter how uncomfortable it might be. Lord, your son Jesus has given us a clear command to confront those who are in sin, call them to repentance, and when they refuse over and over to cast them out. It's not easy, but you said that your way is best. Help us to trust you, Lord, more and more. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 